0: Welcome to Around the IT Block podcast presented by HPE. I'm your host, the IT Oddfather, Calvin Zito. This is podcast number 11, and this is the last of the republished podcasts that I've pulled from TalkShoe and I'm using on our new location for Around the IT Block. So beginning with podcast number 12, they will all be new podcasts that weren't on TalkShoe. This podcast will go back to my roots of storage. And so let's jump into it. On the podcast today, I have Ben Smith. Ben, you, you're probably one of the two guys I go to when I need help with MSA. And you're one of the best guys I have in all of HPE when I need, need help. And, and just I'll say one more thing before I let you introduce yourself. But a lot of people think I really know my storage and they come to me with deep questions. And the fact is, it's guys like you that make me look smart so uh, i just want to say that on the podcast and throw that out as a kudo to you and uh, say welcome to the podcast and why don't don't you tell people what you do for hpe storage
1: well thanks calvin thank you and thanks for having me on Um, so i'm a technical marketing engineer my role is to kind of stand between marketing and r d to produce all the technical materials such as white papers. Uh, technical presentations, give tech talks and that kind of stuff, and to present the product and its technical capabilities, but also the value propositions that that product or solution uh, provides to the end customer.
0: And I know we're going to talk about the MSA. I'm pretty sure MSA is your only product, right? You're not like dealing with other products. You're focused on MSA today.
1: MSA today in our talk will be the uh, the focus, but actually no, I also covered the J2000, J2000 uh, flash enclosures. So those are the NVMe over fabric uh, network attached uh, flash enclosures. They're called the J2000 and the quick specs, they're just labeled as flash enclosures.
0: So I cover those as well and to a lesser degree also JBODs as well. Well, that's interesting because... We actually have never done anything about the J2000, so I may slip a few questions in here about the J2000. I knew we announced it, and uh, yeah, just haven't haven't talked about it at all. So we we may we may circle around and talk about that just real briefly. So let's Fantastic. talk about MSA. Uh, yeah. yeah. What got me like thinking we should do this podcast is I saw you would send a bunch of messages out about some new features. And I thought it'd be good to update people on that. So why don't you just list off what the new features are and then we'll circle back and talk a little bit more about MSA in general and then do Sure.
1: It. Yeah, no, not, not a huge number of uh, features though what we have is certainly very important for the end customer. Uh, we've got a new a few SKUs related to the 10G base T connectivity for the 20 series MSAs. Uh, and critically, we have a new firmware which provides a number of benefits. And also for the pre-sales and the partners, we've got a new tool which allows them to uh, create better configurations.
0: Well, let's for the customer that doesn't know the MSA. Let's start here. The one thing that jumps out for me when I think of MSA is how long we've had it. And every time I do a new Chalk Talk for a new generation of um, MSA, it just keeps getting longer. And it's like, Mm. it's got such a history behind it. I think what's it been 13 years. I know you haven't been involved with the whole 13 years of MSA, but (laughs) let's talk a little bit about that history of MSA and why you think customers think that is an important thing to, to, to know about the MSA.
1: Absolutely. And, And it definitely is. And it's, it's one of the serious benefits of choosing an entry storage platform with HPE is because our platform has been the MSA and it has been for for thirteen years on this particular sort of family, there was a, an MSA prior to it. Some may remember, like the fifteen hundred, the five hundred series, and so on. But the two thousand, so the MSA two thousand, which was launched in two thousand and eight, you know, a long time ago, has been evolving and progressing for all of this time. So that's roughly thirteen years. And last year, you know, we released the Gen six platform, and with it, obviously, all of the new features and capabilities that that came. Uh, all all that brought with it. But now we've released a new firmware, and this is something which we've done historically many times. So the Gen 4 product, for example, with two specific firmware upgrades, we provided a whole series of new features. So we took what was very much an entry box from not just a cost perspective, but also a feature perspective. We took that sort of into the mid-range in the way that we took a lot of those features like thin provisioning and virtualization, and we put that into this entry storage product. And this was at no extra cost if you were a 20 series customer. And then we released a new firmware that added around 30,000 IOPS of performance at no cost to the customer again. So this is not just about value. It's also about having the belief in a product and that the, the company from which you buy that has a commitment to that product. It's not new. It is continuing to be developed. And I think that gives a confidence that customers really appreciate.
0: Yeah, and think about the MSA, and you said it's an entry-level array, and we've obviously really updated it with more mid-range features. Let's talk a little bit, just a bit more about those features, because I think there's people that are still a little confused about what the virtualization is and and how that brings more value to an entry-level array. So talk a little bit about that virtualization, which now with the Gen six it's the only option, right? I know like for a few generations, you could choose between Mm. linear pools and virtual pools. I think now it's the only option on the new Gen 6. Isn't that right? Yeah, you got that right. So
1: the reason for that really is that linear storage, which uh, preceded it and was how you would configure an MSA all the way up to, to this firmware that we released midway through the Gen 4 product. So it was called GL 200. And you're right, and for Gen 4, it was possible to configure both linear and virtual. And so linear is kind of like the traditional way that people think about configuring storage in in the olden days, right? So RAID 5 and RAID 6 on a set of spindles, and then you would put volumes within those, and, and all the workloads for those volumes would share just that series of disks. And obviously that limits you in terms of scaling performance and capacity for a given workload, actually. It also makes expanding and just generally changing the layout of that storage, very difficult. It's not an agile way to do things. So we've made that obsolete since gen five, actually, simply because letting customers do something is nice, but the idea is, especially in an entry product, is not to present options which can confuse or even result in a worse configuration. And this is also why the virtualization and tiering engine is not configurable really, in many ways at all. So the virtualization idea is that you still take underlying that virtual pool of storage, a series of disk groups that you apply RAID, or in the case of Gen 6, MSA DP+, which we can return to uh, a little later. But you take these RAID disk groups, and then on top of that, you add a virtualization layer, which creates a pool of storage. Now, because that pool can be made of uh, drives that have different qualities so ssds of course have the very best dollar to iop um, you know characteristic whereas a 7.2k midline sas drive has a very good dollar to terabyte so capacity ratio you know and by putting those all in the pool and, and not allowing users to have lots of you know, knobs to turn and switches to switch, it stops them adjusting that tiering engine into a way that would actually arrive at worse performance, which can easily happen. If you look at the higher end arrays, you've got to know a fair amount about what you're doing before you start playing with those things. So really just by adding a disk group of a different type, so SSDs and midline SAS drives, for example, to the pool. Now we have a virtual pool of storage where we can add lots of volumes and data is wide striped and the performance is shared among all the drives within that pool. But we also have the benefits of, and the cost savings really, of having a small amount, for example, of SSDs dealing with the IO that they're best suited to. So the applications that require low response times, for example, and then it automatically shuffles, you know, data that's not frequently accessed down into the lower tiers, which offer obviously its own benefits, which are these good ratios of dollar to terabyte. So virtualization, And tiering are the real underpinnings. And in Gen 6, if I may just go on a little bit longer, uh, we introduced MSADP+, which is a new disk group type. So if we have RAID 5, RAID 6, RAID 10, now we have MSADP+. And its advantages are that it's not only an expandable disk group, so it's very flexible. It has built-in sparing, which allows you then to obviously simplify how you manage spares but it also makes those spare drives now not just isolated and doing nothing so you're you know spending money on a drive that does nothing until it's needed rather it actually contributes towards performance uh, for the whole time and the reason that this can happen is that we distribute data in a different manner to how we would normal raid so that spare has a sort of series of chunks associated with it and they're distributed across uh, all drives, and this gives us much better availability, faster rebuild times, and so on, and the cost savings of you know not having wasted drives.
0: So to make that real, not that wasn't real, Ben, because what you said was absolutely real. Uh, if we're looking at a say a ten-drive DP Plus RAID group, you're going to have the data spread across all ten drives. You're going to have the spare space that you need sped spread across all 10 drives and if there was a disk failure it's easier rebuild because now all the drives in the group are involved in the rebuild and it's not just all trying to move data to a single target drive as a as a spare and you're obviously as you said you're getting the performance of that drive because it's part of the group it's not just sitting there waiting for a failure yeah you, you got it spot on so you, you don't need me carbon yeah you already you already know this stuff <laughs> um,
1: so exactly if you've got you know sparing inside the disk group, we've got many to one rebuilds so we're not we're not having to rely on the performance of just one drive
0: that we are rebuilding to for example yeah absolutely so one thing we haven't done and let's just do this quickly too because just in case people don't know what the gen 6 family is i mean there's effectively two hardware platforms and one one that we uh we, we build as a skew because of the thing mm. we throw into it, right? So let's talk about the, the the products in the portfolio, the 1060, the 2060, and the 2062. Why don't you give me a quick summary of each of those?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the, the 1060 is really the entry of the entry. It's the, the baby MSA, if you will. So the 1060 is aimed at those customers who are really starting out with a, a very limited budget. Now it's a very capable box, but it doesn't scale to the same degree as the other arrays so a 1060 allows you to have up to three additional closures for example the base array is sff only we don't have an lff model of that and up from that then is the 2062 and the 2062 is the full fledged msa array uh it has all the capabilities of the 2060 except for it also supports encryption as indeed does the 1060 by the way and so There are no licenses involved, but it's the full performance, the full feature set. And the 2062 actually is a 2060. However, we include with it two 1.92 terabyte SSDs within the cost. And we also include the Advanced Data Services Suite license. And really, because the majority of, of customer workloads really are calling for a hybrid configuration, hybrid being that we have SSDs and HDDs typically within the same pool, Again, so that we can have that cost savings and performance uh, that we get from tiering. So the 2062 really is the general, generally speaking, I would say that that's the array, the SFF version, particularly that most customers gravitate
0: toward. So you mentioned the 2062 includes the advanced data services suite. I think in the past, I knew that included performance tiering so that you could have two tiers of performance and you know take advantage of the, you know, the tiering between SSD and hard drives. what's included in the advanced data services suite? Very good question, Calvin. Um, Thanks for asking it actually. So the advanced data services
1: suite license includes actually three things. It it actually includes the ability to do remote snap replication. So if you're doing array to array replication of, of snapshots then you will need a license per array. It also includes the ability to take up from the base 64 snapshots to the full 512 snapshots per system. Um, but I think what most people consider it to be is the ability to have both SSDs and HDDs as capacity within the same system. So it's a really good question because it's maybe a chance to clear this up. There is some confusion that seems to go around this one um, because I think historically that license, it, it was actually individual licenses. We didn't have a suite. There were three individual licenses and it was called the, the uh, performance tiering license, which does suggest in in fairness it does suggest that we're doing performance tiering that is having a single pool and that's constructed of ssds and hdds however it actually happens if we have ssds in one pool and hdds in the other acting as capacity so not including read cache and not including all flash pools but if we have still in just the same system so each pool being configured differently you still need that license okay so that's that sometimes trips people up and so the 2062. Coming with that license allows you to do every configuration, whereas with the 2060, you would you would actually not need it if you were doing all flash pools, and you would not need it if you were doing read cache. But if you have SSDs and HDDs as capacity, then you need that license.
0: Great, that's a great great uh, um, summary of what the differences are. So let's let's jump back to what we started with, and the whole point of doing this is what's new. Mm. And uh, I know you started with the. Uh, 10 base T, that's new. Well, let's talk a little bit about that first, and tell me what that is, and what the advantages of having that would be for a customer.
1: Yeah, so I think the 10 G base T connectivity, it's, it, it's, I think it's very interesting for for most new, certainly semi modern data centers. You know, the obvious benefits of 10 G base T is that you're running on traditional, you know, Cat 6a cable, right? Regular Ethernet cable. If you've ever seen a DAC cable. And You've ever cabled a DAC cable, the traditional you know, SFP plus DAC cable, it can it can very quickly not be fun. They're very thick, they're very cumbersome. And also they're you know they're not particularly cheap if you compare them to regular Ethernet cables either. So optics, you know, that's been the way for a long time that we've done um 10 gig on MSA at least. We did introduce 10G base T for the 1060. Uh, and elected initially not to have that on the 20 series. So this is what we're doing now, and what we've done, in fact, is that we've released this uh, capability. And I think the net benefit, besides the fact that it's going to to play, you know, well with the modern switching infrastructure that's quite probably in the customer site or soon to be, um, is the cost savings. I mean, this is the obvious sort of one that you could look at. I mean, if you if you did a compare of I don't know a couple of servers together and some switches. And an MSA, and we've done this. Obviously, (laughs) you'll find that there's quite a significant saving, right? So you could get down to something like fifty-five percent of reduction in costs. And these are real. We, you know, looked at the real numbers. If you exclude the fact that you've got SFP plus transceivers now, we don't need those. Um, The switches, the the cost of the switches do vary a little bit, but they can be cheaper. And you know, there is a question about the overall price of the array. So the ten G based T array is in fact, just that little bit more expensive than the SFP Plus, so there's a question about that. But the fact of the matter is, is that the SFP Plus version of HiSCSI does require that you buy these transceivers. Now, you don't need to buy those for the 10G base T. And so, although initially it might look as though it's a slightly more expensive option, it's actually not. Overall, when you build the solution, you take infrastructure into account, it is very much cheaper. So
0: let's talk Definitely. about drive sizes. I mean, we're always coming out with new drive sizes, and I know you mentioned that there's some new drive sizes. So what are the, the max drive sizes we have now for the MSA family?
1: Right. Yes. Yeah. So we have um pretty gargantuan drives. We've now got 18 terabyte midline SAS drives, which of course, you know, they're enormous. The the density um can be important for other kind of uses. MSA is traditionally um, used with the small, medium business-type customer, where that is sort of 30 terabytes, maybe 50 terabytes of capacity. Might all be in a single unit as well. Um, so those drives are not typically going to be massively interesting uh, for those guys. However, the MSA is also used a lot for high-capacity storage because it's a scale-up system. The 2060, for example, would be a good solution for that. It has uh, the ability to add nine additional large form factor enclosures And density is good. The less enclosures you have to buy, the the better it is for power and cooling and so on. And so with the 18 terabyte drives, it just allows us to get up to some sort of silly capacities. Now there are limitations that you can sort of reach with drives this large. So a single pool can be up to currently one petabyte. There has been discussion about making that larger, but right now it's a a measly one petabyte. I mean, that's a lot of capacity, right? And uh, for the 1060, as I mentioned earlier, we don't have an LFF version of the base unit. You have to have SFF and then up to three LFF enclosures. So I don't think that one's necessarily the most interesting use. It would be, again, the 2060, ideally. And 120 of those, well, you can get up to a raw capacity of 2.16 petabytes now. So, you know, just a huge density of capacity uh, for which the MSA, I think, is a significant leader in that department, actually.
0: Okay. Let's too talk too. about, uh, there's a new f- uh, firmware too. And obviously mm-hmm. firmware in and of itself may not be that interesting, but the features that are packed into the new firmware, let's talk a little bit about what the new firmware is and what, what you think it brings to customers.
1: Sure. So yeah, a new firmware, it can, it could be in a few different things really, can't it? It could be performance. It could be features. It could be both. Um, usually there's some sort of fixes as well. If you've got a first, iteration of release firmware there's always there's always something that you want to make better so surely there are a few bug fixes and that kind of thing uh, within this new firmware features wise not so much we didn't really plan to introduce huge numbers of features for this firmware there are changes to the behavior of, of cash but I don't think that's so interesting for your listeners certainly if they want to read about it I've written about it in the best practices so that's always a document that I I hope people do pay attention to and do read. So they build good configurations, Um, but performance is the focus of this one. So the iSCSI performance in particular has taken quite a a jump up for the 2060, the 1060, no significant performance changes there. The 1060 is obviously different hardware to the, to the larger boxes and that's already running as fast as it's going to go. So the, the 1060, no great performance changes sequential uh, IO also will not see any dramatic changes. We're really talking about random read and write across all all the protocols, so Fibre Channel, SAS, and iSCSI, uh, principally for the 2060 and the 2062. And I think you know it's kind of important to kind of just note about the MSA that it's it's no slouch and it hasn't actually been a slouch for a long, long time. I would say the P2000 even even its performance of about thirty thousand ARPs, could meet some you know current SMB. Uh, performance requirements still. The 2040, it jumped up quite significantly. We were around a sort of 120,000 IOPS. The Gen 5, I think we got up to about 270, something like that. And for the Gen 6, we have been at 325,000 random read IOPS, you know, and sequential throughput of up to like 13 gigabytes per second. I mean, that, that was already ludicrously fast. And specific customers with specific workloads might be able to consume them But in general, not really. You know, it it would be unusual to see that sort of performance uh, actually consumed. But however, there are those that need it. And this new firmware has jumped us up quite significantly. So if we've gone from 325,000 IOPS, we're now close to 400, around 395,000 random read IOPS, which is significant, of course. You know, this is a massive increase, sort of around the sort of order of 35, 34%, something like that. And again, it's just the firmware that you download. That firmware is available from either the array UI. So I'm not sure if you know, but in gen six, we introduced the ability to be made aware that your array is eligible for a newer firmware from within the array UI itself. This was previously not possible. The only way to get that information otherwise was to use the wonderful health check tool hopefully your listeners know about it or not already, but if not, then just Google MSA health check, you'll find it. This allows you to upload your log data from P2000, Gen 4, Gen 5, and Gen 6, and it will tell you whether or not you are meeting best practices in terms of availability. So not performance best practices, but do you have the current firmware that you should have? Have you configured notifications and so on? And so this is one way to find out about firmware, But if you're on Gen 6, well, again, it can come from the array itself, which can be more convenient for some users. And not only are you told there's a new firmware, you can just click the link. And, well, it does this for hard drives as well. And if ever you've had to search for firmware for three, four or five different hard drives, which easily happens, it, it was never any fun. But now, whether using Health Check on an older array or, you know, using the UI feature of Gen 6, you can now just click that. And download the firmware. And one thing that did change recently that not everyone may know about is, up to recently, it was necessary to have a support contract to be able to download uh, firmware, controller firmware for the MSA array. That's no longer necessary. So everyone can just log on to hp.com, go to the support website, and download that firmware at no cost. And I should point out, health check also is at no cost and no support contract required for that uh, either. So this is also just part of that larger ecosystem of of um, how HPE takes care of its customers and we're innovating, you know, trying to make things better for, for everyone.
0: Well, um, there's a couple things that I want to reemphasize health check. Uh, you, you know, I'm active on, um, uh, spice And that's usually the first thing I tell people to do is to, you mm. know, go get health check and check out your MSA before we go too deep, trying to figure out what's going on when somebody posts, uh, um, a, question about something that they're seeing and that i want to re-emphasize you said it but it doesn't require a support contract that's Mm. pretty freaking cool um definitely the thing i didn't know about that i'm just like i was on mute but i was applauding you couldn't hear me is i didn't realize that we now allowed customers to download firmware for their controllers without a support contract yeah to me that's huge i mean i think i have the biggest complaint i hear about hpe is that we do that, that we don't let people have firmware updates unless they have a support contract. And mm, mm. I, I love that we're doing that with MSA. That's great that we can allow the customers now to download uh, controller firmware without having a contract. Definitely seems fair, right? It does. And I, you know, I'm probably going to get in trouble saying this out loud, but I wish other parts of the portfolio did it, you know, the ProLiant and some of the other, our, the rest of our storage portfolio, I don't know, maybe, maybe something's changed there and I'm not aware of it, but it just, customers need updated firmware let them go get the firmware let's not make them have pay for a support contract to get the latest firmware
1: yeah but- there's always a reason for every decision both for and against probably doing that i couldn't speak for anyone else but yeah like you i feel pleased that that decision was made and uh, you know again it's an it's an entry platform we don't want to make it difficult right we want to keep it simple
0: so let's uh wrap up the discussion on msa is there anything else around msa well you talked about the sizing tool and again um, let, let's go to the sizing tool. It's not a tool customers can use themselves, no. but HPE and channel partners have access to it. And the end result of using it is going to be very positive for customers. So once you mention briefly what that is, and customers who are looking at an MSA should make sure that their, their partner is using the tool to, to size their, uh, make sure they're configuring a best practices array.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the critical thing. Best practices configurations. You know, I've I've been doing MSA for quite a few years. Um, Now, I think, well, since about 2009 or something, 2011. I don't know, a while. And over that time and, and all the time, I see configurations coming in that customers need help with. It's usually indirect, but not always. It depends whether or not we've met at a trade show or something like that. And often they are with best intentions built to, you know, to a specific amount of cost that was available to, to yield a certain amount of capacity. And not everyone's got the knowledge of how MSA uh, should be configured. It's a simple box on the surface, but actually to build a good configuration, well, it's not that easy. You've got to take a lot of things into account. If you're using a tiering solution, as you often would if using uh, Gen 6 MSA, for example, then you need to pay attention to the ratios of those tiers. Having a small, you know, two percent flash ratio, if you will, against a hundred terabytes of, of midline SAS, it's just not going to perform well. The tiering engine won't be able to do what it's supposed to do. And also, if you have too high a flash ratio, then you're losing out on the cost benefits of having tiering in the first place, which is to not invest in lots of expensive media, which SSDs, of course, are. So I think just. Best practice, taking care of that's an important thing as as well as trying to make sure that you've met your capacity and your performance goal in general. So you've mentioned that the customers can't use it, but you know, I have a sneaking suspicion that if they can create a passport account, they actually can. And a simple search on Google for HPE ninja sizer for MSA should yield the link uh, can't promise it will work but certainly partners and HPE staff do have that and that really allows them to do a few things it means that there's not such a, um, a pressure on them to keep up to date with all the rules of MSA and all the other products that they have to cover they have a very nice user interface now and this is a version two of that tool so they had it before but it was only able to create rather limited configurations they were best practice and they were going to fit most hands but they weren't a perfect glove for every scenario now they have a tool that allows them to tweak and adjust things that they can really arrive at any number of best practice configurations before it was limited to a few now it's every single possible one for any capacity across any array any protocol and so that's all really is going to end up for the customer in a configuration which is going to be cost effective best practice it's going to reduce their need for a support call or to go searching for the expertise on Spiceworks or, or wherever they may get it because they've already got a configuration that does what it's supposed to do.
0: That's a great update on the MSA. Before we leave it, one thing I want to do is give people the URL where you can get more. We should have probably given this before. You can find more at hpe.com storage MSA, easy URL. So let's transition off the MSA, Ben and we talked about having a little bit of bonus content around the J2000. We call it a JBuff, just a bunch of flash, replaced what we used to call JBOD, just a bunch of disks. Why don't you give us an update about kind of what it is and who it's targeted for? Sure. So, well, yes, again, we have it
1: is listed in QuickSpecs as HPE Flash enclosures, the J2000, though part of the name isn't featured there, which uh, doesn't help us really because it is the J2000. And that product's really not aimed, there are some some folk, maybe because I work on that too, who think it's a sort of replacement or expansion or something similar to that for the MSA. It's it's really not, it's an enterprise class uh, JBOF. It's fabric connected, this is the critical thing. So it's NVMe over fabrics. We use a Rocky V2 compliant fabric to allow more than one server actually to connect in over a switched infrastructure to Either one of two models of J2000, it could be the two port, it could be the six port. There are pros and cons for, for both of those, which I doubt we have time to elaborate on too much. But you could imagine the two port is for smaller customer configurations, whereas the six ports, the sort of full-fledged version for the super high performance configurations. So we can get up some some dizzying performance numbers. The six port, for example, you're looking at over $10 million IOPS and 70 gigabytes a second of throughput. So, you know, this is for the customers that are doing I- extreme application workloads, um, whether that be big data or even media outlets could use something like this. So the idea obviously is to allow really the separation, the disk aggregation, if you will, of those high performance NVMe drives from the servers. Typically, any customer that requires that they're buying NVMe drives within the servers themselves. And this has some limiting factors about it, right? Because of course you'll invest in some SSDs, you'll place them in the server and maybe that workload needs to expand its capacity footprint expands, but you've run out of space and you can no longer add additional capacity to that server. Well, that presents one kind of problem. The other might be that you're consolidating workloads from multiple servers to one, now are you going to go through the physical process of moving those nvme drives um, you know are you going to have to do some sort of data migration it can get confusing it can get complicated um, but these are scenarios that happen all the time the, the nvme business is is rather large actually and for these internal drives so the ability to place those on ostensibly a network now it's not a san as you mentioned it's a it's a jbof there's no intelligence within those I.O. modules, in fact, so they don't do RAID or any of those sort of things. You, you can use applications that may have availability provided by the end application itself. It could be that that data is transient and you don't need it to be highly available. It could be that you do want to add some level of software protection. I actually wrote a paper which is available to the partners in HPE and soon will be publicly available on HP.com that looks into using uh, Linux RAID software raid and also lbms to offer that high level of availability and they perform still very very well so really yes this box is a high performance beast that allows you to disaggregate those internal nvme drives and we're just yeah hoping that obviously people are hearing about it so i'm very grateful that you asked these questions on your podcast actually so it's a relatively new product as you mentioned
0: well will they include uh i don't know how much additional information is but i'm actually looking at the quick specs for it and by the mm. way you'll you'll be grateful to know that i actually searched for hpe j2000 quick spec and it did come up oh, while great. it's not in the title of the quick spec google's smart enough to find it so fantastic uh so we'll include some notes in the uh in the show notes so that people can find more about it
1: so one one thing you could do besides the quick specs um i've also written a paper that's what i do right um on implementing it with linux so couple of things about OS support. We support SUSE and Red Hat, Enterprise Linux. And right now, those are the only distributions that we're supporting. But it does get asked, oh, what about VMware? What about vSAN? What about Windows? So VMware we're working on, vSAN will follow. It's it's taking its time, but it's absolutely uh, important, of course, because there's a software-defined storage story that then starts to emerge, especially in the case of using vSAN. Um, But Windows, not everyone seems to know, Windows don't want to support native NVMe over fabrics. So you can buy third-party software that allows you to essentially translate between the native storage layer and NVMe over fabrics. But, of course, you're going to lose out on some performance for that, and we're just not qualifying it. The whole point and the reason we're using, for example, Rocky V2 and not TCP initially is because this product's all about the super low latencies we're talking microsecond latencies here um, and that can only be provided if you keep the software stacks and the services minimal to zero um, and that means obviously no translate translation layer
0: well I appreciate uh, you having mentioned it at the beginning so we could talk about it for a few minutes and uh, Ben I appreciate you taking some time today to do the podcast with me and again I just thanks thanks for the help you always provide to me to help people on SpiceWorks, you're an invaluable resource
1: uh it's a pleasure i mean it's an honor to be here and honestly without without you calvin you know how would we be taking care of those people so it's a it's a mutual thing
0: appreciate what you do well thanks a bunch and uh let's do this again sometime soon
1: sounds great thank you
0: with this now being an official HPE podcast, you will no longer be able to find new episodes on TalkShoe. You can find the podcast on Spotify Podcast, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music and Audible, Podcast Static. Hopefully you'll find it soon on iTunes, and if you really struggle to find it, go to feeds.transistor.fm around-the-it-block. Love hearing from you on Twitter, where you can find me as Calvin Zito. You can find our blogs at community.hpe.com. Until next time, thanks for joining me.